0: Diners and Trappers. You're listening On the Menu with Dan and Peter Hay. And today we bring you a high program. High meaning up, tall, far.
1: Yes, and, and far away too. Yeah. High up and far away.
0: Yeah, so
1: figure that one out if you can.
0: For, for all of you skiers out there, who probably respond well to, to our next guest, um, Marla Meredith. Uh, she writes High Alpine Cuisine. And I guess if you're on the slopes all the time, you need sustenance, and that's what she's given you in her cookbook.
2: Marla Meredith, you've written a book called High Alpine Cuisine, and uh, the, the ski sites, the uh, the high alpine around the world sites, uh, is your environment, isn't it?
3: it yeah, it, it is. Very inviting,
2: and, and you said, "Yeah, you said moving to Telluride was your idea of heaven, huh?"
3: Yeah, moving to Telluride was a dream come true. I had been it had been on my hot list to move here for years before we actually made the, the real move, the full time commitment to the mountains.
2: Right, I mean, you you come from a totally different background. When did you start this love affair with skiing?
3: Uh, yeah, so I I actually grew up on Long Island in New York, which was very different. And we call those the um you know, the lowlanders, people without any altitude.
4: And um, <laughs>
3: I think that I was high I was really influenced um as a young
1: child,
3: my family would pack up, get out of Long Island for the summer. And go to the countryside in Devon, England, which was rolling hills and beautiful cows. And yeah. wasn't necessarily high alpine, but it was country. Yeah, it's
2: beautiful. Devon I mean, is beautiful. Yeah, yeah. Why,
1: why, did it? You, why did you go to Devon? Was there a family connection? Yes. Or?
3: Yeah, we, it was. My father, uh, his sister, my aunt, she had a dairy farm there. So that my, my dad and his sisters grew up in Bayside, Queens, but then they... Um, my two aunts decided to move to England Right after college So we frequented that farm in Devon
1: yeah. we'll, we'll be driving Close to that right before Christmas yeah. oh, Peter, Peter's well, brother beautiful. lives in, in Cornwall
2: In St. Agnes, Cornwall oh, yeah. Yeah.
3: Yep, I've been there,
2: beautiful yeah, but, And we have uh, Friends, colleagues who have a farm In Devon too, almost on the border With Cornwall, it's beautiful Just beautiful Oh yeah, it's yeah.
3: lovely the, the food that I experienced there, those, you know, farm-fresh cheeses and vegetables grown on the farm and fruit, and it really inspired my, um, my taste buds for life. I mean, I love real food, and my book really taps into those flavors and ingredients.
2: Now, you did everything yourself on this book. You did the uh, recipe development. You did the uh, uh, food styling. You did the photography. Boy, you're talented. That it, thank you so much.
3: It, it's correct. I did it all. And even, even the photo on the cover, I have my skis, wearing my ski outfit. I'm in St. Christoph, Austria, on that cover. I actually took that myself, too, so it's pretty funny. You only, took it. I took that as well, the selfie on the cover. But, <laughs> yeah, all the food. I'm a, I, I always call myself a chill of all trades, like a lot of women are these days.
2: Right. Well, then you don't miss half it, don't you?
1: Well, yeah, you do for M- sure. M- M- how much commonality is there in, in I feel like ski country food around the world? I mean, the, you, your title implies that there there is indeed a thing called high altitude cooking. High alpine. High alpine. Yeah, well, there you go. Yeah,
3: yeah. And let's, there's definitely a differentiation. I didn't make this book high altitude because I wanted it to be suitable for. Let's say the girl in New York who loves Aspen so much and is dreaming about going back and she wants to taste the flavor. She wants to cook the meals, the the food, the recipes in her house. Nothing has to be adapted for any altitude in my book, which is great. Um, I was going to ask you
2: that. That was one of the questions I was going to ask you, yeah.
3: Yeah. In this case, I kept the book really neutral. Um, uh, So... I'm sorry. We just you just asked. Um, oh, the commonality. Yeah, there is a commonality between all those regions. I mean, when you think about high alpine areas, you're talking about places that do not have long grow seasons. Very, very short seasons where you can grow anything fresh or find anything fresh. You know, naturally out there, like the mushrooms or the strawberries or you know um, different greens and stuff like that. The season's very, very short. In all those areas. So that's why you find, and it's cold most of the year, but you need the heartier foods that sustain you and give you energy and that nurturing experience.
2: Now, tell us about, first of all, um, we're going to talk about your blog, Um, Mm -hmm. although it's an it's changed too, and when you finally moved to Telluride. Right. But uh, how did you start writing a blog? Uh, what did that's you a great do? Be, yeah, what did you do before? I mean, what made you start a blog?
3: Well, originally, when I left school, I went to Syracuse University. When I left there, I left there as a textile designer. So I worked in New York City um, uh, doing textile design. Which evolved from fabric, regular, like, upholstery fabrics and stuff into working with licensed characters for uh, Disney and Warner Brothers and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And, um, with that experience, I learned a lot about branding and how to really work within a brand's parameters. And over the years, I clearly have made myself and my, myself a brand and what I do. So the transition from textile to, cooking was after I had my kids. I didn't work for a while. However, all I was doing was focusing on creating fresh food for my kids. I had never been so much of a kid, but definitely after I had them, I was just like, I wanted to cook every meal. I wanted to eat so healthy. And I was also training for a lot of marathons at that time. And I wanted to be sort of like an elite athlete shape. So what everything I ate really made an important impact on how I felt, how I performed and also for my kids. Their moods, their you know I wanted to give them nurturing foods that they liked. So I learned a lot about food then, self taught, um, and then when my daughter was six and my son was three, in two thousand nine I was like, I've got to start working again. I, I love work so much. I want to be creative, but I want to do something different than textile. So everyone was really intrigued by all the cooking I was doing and staying so fit and I brought a lunch box everywhere. I packed three lunch boxes a day for myself my kids, and the kids. They said, you should write down these recipes. They're awesome. And a cousin of mine said, have you ever started a blog? I was like, what is a blog? I don't even know what that is. Mm-hmm. And back in <laughs> back in 2009, it wasn't quite as, you know, we all know what it was. There. And so it started off as family fresh cooking at home. It was only about food. And uh, it just you know, amateur, real amateur photos. And then through the years, I took a lot of photo workshops and social media workshops and started to really understand the business. And I followed a lot of people. I I love that, you know, leading by example. I had a lot of sort of mentors and things I would look at to really learn the ins and outs of that the world, the social media world and the food world. And hopefully working um, through the years, I've experienced, kitchens around the world, I've I've sat sat, sat side-by-side chefs and watched them prepare and and help them prepare different foods, and a lot of those experiences were in the mountain mountain kitchens, like in the Alps and here in Colorado, and that really furthered my understanding.
2: Well, was this planned, this sort of like apprenticeship kind of thing was planned? You had this uh, goal in mind is what you're heading for? You know, it was interesting
3: when I work with tourism boards for, so part of my job isn't only working with um, food brands and writing and photographing, it's experiencing travel and then writing about that travel to bring back to my audience. And thankfully, with my food tie-in, when the tourism boards and different hotels book my stay, they're like, hey, we see that you're a big food writer and photographer. Would you like to spend a few hours in our kitchen Uh with the chef? And the answer is, of course, yes. (laughs) Yes. So it's just sort of happened through the years, and I get a lot of kitchen tours, and I've toured some of the most amazing kitchens in the world. It's, like, baffling, and I'm grateful.
2: Uh Uh-huh. Now, um, you're you're a single mom. You've been a single mom.
3: Yeah, now I'm a single mom. Mm Mm-hmm.
2: Some of the the best creative ideas come out of women who are raising families and have to work. <laughs>
3: yeah, it's super interesting. It's so funny. I, I started this thing where I keep this huge binder of recipe tear sheets from magazines on the counter. And in the morning, I'm like, okay, kids, tell me what you're in the mood for for dinner. And instead of them saying the same thing every night, you know, every day, they look through the binder and go, oh, this looks good. That looks good. This looks good. And okay. I cook from their ideas and um, improvise to make my own
1: twist. Would you like to come and be my mother?
3: <laughs> yeah, sir. <laughs> sure. I don't know if I need another kid right now, but, you know. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> you,
1: you probably don't. <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah, they're pretty tricky, those kids. Yeah.
1: I know. I was, I was thinking about me.
2: <laughs> so funny. Wow. Well, so, um, yeah, you, your kids were... The motivation for the healthy part I I suspect but you too I mean you're you're, uh, an athlete I mean that that makes a big difference
3: it really does and you know it's funny one of the best things about living here in Telluride Colorado at super high altitude you burn calories just walking up and down the stairs I mean it's you can really eat anything and back when I lived in California that's when I was where I had the kids where I was training for marathons it was like Pounds didn't slide off like they do here. You need hearty food in the mountains.
2: I, well, you know, I, I I spent some time in Guatemala, and uh, I realized I mean I would have like black beans three times a day and you know, all these carbs, and you, it right. just sort of uh, and you could eat all this because you burned all all those calories off all those carbs.
3: Oh, absolutely. I, I, was, I didn't eat much carbs at all when I was at sea level in here.
2: You crave a big bowl of pasta all the time. Yes. Now, what yeah. are some of your, uh, I mean, one of my favorite sections, I think, of your book is actually your drink section.
4: <laughs> oh. <laughs> Mainly because they're so pretty.
3: Oh, thank you. It's so much fun creating those cocktails and photographing them.
2: Now, what are some of your favorites?
3: Um, a little, uh, well, that's a good question. So, which good one? Question. I think the Nutty Nord cocktail is super interesting. It's got a beautiful mix of this noccello, this walnut flavored liquor that you yes. really don't you don't see that often. It's fun to use it and heavy cream, nutmeg, and cinnamon, and um, it's it's funny. It's a, it's a it's a cool cocktail. You shake it with ice, but at the same time, there's this warming quality to all the flavors. So it's a nice mix. Taste-wise, um, I know people are huge
2: fans of my
3: loaded Bloody Mary recipe. Yes, that's
2: the one I'm looking at right now. And is that a burger on top of there or what? It's a, it's a, yeah, yeah.
1: It's officially a slider, slider I guess.
2: Yeah,
3: exactly. It's a slider with caramelized onions. And bacon you got meat? in there. What's that?
1: There's some bacon in there, too.
3: Oh. Life is always better with bacon, isn't
1: it? Yeah, <laughs> yeah he, he sh- you should label this one Some disassembly required
3: <laughs> uh, Isn't that true? Oh my gosh, that's so funny You need like an extra plate sitting on the side with this one
2: now, what, what else would you point out to us? the most interesting of your recipes?
3: In the book uh, You know, it's interesting I mean, of course I love all of them and I, I love flipping through my own book And I get hungry That makes me really excited uh um, well as far as uh, we goes, I love the Engadin nut tart uh, the new tarts from um, Switzerland and it's very specific to that area of this tart my first trip ever going to Switzerland I was introduced to this tart and gosh the flavor is just so beautiful and it it's great for sometimes I'll sneak it in for breakfast it's so nice in the afternoon with a cup of coffee Definitely, it's a very caramelly nut interior with a beautiful crust, a shortbread crust.
2: Um. I like your bison sliders. I mean, we we interviewed someone from Colorado who's um, I can't remember, Kathy Lund.
1: She's with the
2: uh-huh. She's with she's the bison.
1: She's with the Bison Association.
2: Yeah. Oh, awesome. Yeah, and she sent us samples, and I've had bison before. Well, I've had bison you could hardly cut with a <laughs> hatchet, you know. This she, she sent really tender bison, and a lot of flavor, and, uh, yep. yeah, and I think if they get their organization going, that'll be, um, that'll have a lot more popularity on everybody's meat list.
3: I, I absolutely love bison. Love it, and thank goodness they serve a lot of it around here.
2: Yeah, but there, there's a lot of bad Bison out there, there too, so I mean, they have a lot of issues with quality control. I think
3: it it is for sure. I mean, you definitely want to eat the good stuff. Um, but yeah, those are so good, so good, and people even that bacon aioli is again bacon. Who doesn't love bacon? Um, that that makes them really come together. Another one, um, the Alpen macaroni. You see that? Oh, yeah. It's the the one pot Swiss Alpen macaroni. Yeah,
4: I'm just the, looking the, at that. I, that's just funny that because is, this,
2: as I turned the page, you you mentioned it. Yeah, it looks very that, good.
3: Oh, It's so hardy. It's so beautiful. And, you know, coming in from a cold day, whether you've been skiing or just doing you know, taking a walk outside or whatever, to come home to this is like... <laughs> Yeah. It's now, heavenly, and again, you've got the and onion, your cheeses, but, you know, the cheese coming out of the alpine areas, in this case, it's Gruyere. It's just, oh, the flavors are awesome, and the interesting twist when they serve this that, that shocked me was the applesauce on the
2: side. Did uh-huh. you notice that? No, I didn't. Well, I look at it again.
3: I always serve it with a small bowl of applesauce on the
2: side. Oh, that's great. That's good. Now That um, flavor. Ugh. the uh, Your blog. Um, it's not just about food, is it? It's also about lifestyle.
3: It's very much a lifestyle blog, yeah. I cover a lot of um, fashion, beauty, and travel as well. And that's why I changed the name from Family slash Cooking to MarlaMeredith.com was because I wanted to be able to write... Freely, not just about food.
2: Right. You have mm-hmm. you have a lot of followers. So a lot of people are interested in this.
3: Yeah, I mean the followers are great. It's you know, it's definitely been a work in progress from two thousand nine till now, I'm coming up on a decade almost, and um, it's been so rewarding in so many ways. I like, building that online audience isn't easy. And keeping their attention, you know, you really need to work at it.
2: I know it's, it takes up so much time. I mean, every
4: so often, oh. I like
1: to unplug. We're, we're, we're sort of familiar with that concept.
4: <laughs> I
3: know exactly. It's and it's hard for me to unplug. I got to admit, I love being plugged in.
2: <laughs> oh, now um, what? What? What next? You have your book out. You have your ongoing blog. Um, yeah, you travel. Do you organize yes, got, stores and things?
3: I've got some great trips lined up for um, this year and into 2019. I'm actually, and and so much of where I travel is based on my food experiences that I'm going to have. Yeah. I am heading off to Barcelona and Mallorca in November, and oh. I've never been there. So that's oh. going to be.
2: We were just in Barcelona. and Yeah, they're great places to eat there. <laughs> right? I mean,
3: I can't even imagine. I'll have to get some recommendations from you guys for sure. Oh, listen.
1: Well, jump, yeah. jump, on, jump on the website and look for Barcelona and there are two programs, I think, with with chefs and restaurateurs from from Barcelona they are right there for the asking. Yeah. Okay,
3: great. Um, I'm super excited to see that because I really I, I love going in into, an, into an area knowing absolutely nothing and then um, discovering that you know, all this abundance of culture and food. I, I actually just got back from my first trip to South America. I was skiing in, in Chile uh, uh-huh. a few weeks ago. Yeah, that was, and, and for culinary, it was fascinating. Yes. The um, the
4: food
3: is so fresh and beautiful.
2: Right, yeah. Lima's good, too, if you want to explore More South America, I mean, the good restaurants. So, oh yeah, and also, uh, you're in Barcelona. I mean, uh, San Sebastian is wonderful for food.
3: I saw you guys had some pictures from there. I need to listen to the uh, to more info on that. Uh, The um, oh yeah, so so when you ask like what's next, I definitely want to just keep traveling, keep taking notes, keep figuring it out. I would, I'd love to do more books based on um, different sort of cultures, but I also there's so much more left to see as far as skiing going, skiing around the world. Flavors I've never experienced, like going to New Zealand, Japan, just got back from Chile. Maybe there'll be another Alpine book based on more, you know, less frequented destinations. I mean there's there's definitely another seventy five recipes I can come
2: up with oh, yeah. for high alpine. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> Well, Marla, I mean, it's it's great that you took some time when you're touched down on, <laughs> to talk to us. And again, it's it's Marla Meredith, and the book is High Alpine Cuisine, and the blog is Marla Meredith, um, and and that's is the exact address. Marla Meredith yeah. Yes. Well, good yep. listeners, look that up, and you can check out. Food and fashion and the the elation of skiing. Thanks, yeah. Marla.
3: Thank you so much. I really appreciate it and enjoyed talking to you.
2: You too. Bye bye.
1: Bye. Podcasting services for On the Menu Radio are provided by ASP Station. www.aspstation.net. back, our uh, next guest traveled even further than Telluride, although she started out fairly close because I, I believe she was actually born in the state of Utah, which is pretty close by Telluride. Uh, but she, she's been around the world just a little bit. And and I wonder what,
0: why the, they named her Nevada, when she was born. Yeah, In Utah,
1: <laughs> exactly. exactly. But, but anyway, for, for reasons which she, to an extent, explains... Um, but it gives her an excuse to introduce the cuisine of her adopted country, which is Norway.
2: Well, you know, Nevada Berg, you haven't explained yet why somebody who was born in Salt Lake City, is Utah, is named Nevada, but it's kind of irrelevant because you really uh, have, are living in Norway and have just written this very interesting book, called North Wild Kitchen, which is also um, your your website, right? And blog? It is, yes. Yes, that's correct. And it, the thing that I found really interesting about this cookbook is we are all inundated with new Nordic cuisine, but, but you're going for the home cooking from the heart of Norway, which is something we don't get to see very much of.
5: Yeah, I, th- I felt it was really really important to be able to tell more about the food culture here in Norway, and that includes the traditions, um, it includes the, you know, all the recipes that have been passed down from generations, but it's also about the ingredients that are found here in Norway and how that all comes together to holistically form what Norwegians are actually eating every day and in the home. So, of course, there's inspiration of the new New Nordic, but it's not something that, you know is replicated well enough in the household. So I wanted to be able to kind of share the stories and the food culture that, that really does exist here and and kind of the beauty of the journey and the history behind old plates and the dishes.
1: Now, how long have you lived in Norway?
5: It is uh, three years now. Aha. Uh-huh. So not too long. Not too long. <laughs> <laughs> you sound content. You sound like you're really enjoying it. I do. I really do. Um... My, I actually am married to a Norwegian, which is kind of the Norwegian uh, connection. Yes. And, yeah, so we, that's what brought us here. And actually, we've been living, I've lived outside the U.S. for about 13 years now, mm-hmm. and we've been traveling a lot around the world. And we were living in Rome, Italy, before we moved here, and we have a, a little boy, and we kind of wanted to settle down.
2: Yeah, that's so that's our was, story too, by the way. Is it? <laughs> it is it? <laughs> but we ended up in Pittsburgh, not quite the same as. My oh, way. <laughs> well, well, that's <laughs> all right. Yeah, it's
5: I mean. still a good place. <laughs> <laughs> but it's true. It's it's funny how it always kind of brings you back down to where you have to be rooted in a community. It's true. Well, I mean,
2: I I kept you saying know? we never get set down any roots. So w
4: well, uh, well,
1: we did forty-five years or so ago, we did.
5: Yeah, R- Rome
2: is. Wonderful. Yeah.
5: Yes, Rome was Rome uh, was very lovely. Um, it's you know, for me, I love history and I love culture and food, obviously. So, you know, just walking through the streets every day was just such an amazing experience.
2: Yeah, the first to time be able
5: to just know people.
2: Yeah, r- go ahead. The first time uh, Peter was in Rome with me, um, you know, he's English from the north of England, and he said he knew what. Old was he understood that, but he was. This is his first exposure to ancient, and that's what I think is so distinguishing about uh, Roman culture.
5: It's true, and and it's so lovely how when you're walking down the street, you can actually see the layers.
4: Uh-huh. You know how they've managed right. to put
5: all the centuries together and, and the new now, and it's it's a, it's a fascinating place. You know, right. There's no place like it.
4: You know, and the
1: fun, the funny part about it is. All of it was discovered by a funny old English lady. <laughs> no, nobody knew it was there. Nobody knew the forum was there. I
2: know.
6: They covered it. Oh, really? They they had, yeah. yeah. Oh, they she, had photographs dis- I've
2: seen
1: She, she oh, discovered cows. it. Exactly. was
2: grazing on the, the, on top of the forum.
1: Yeah. W- w- oh, quite, wow. Quite what she was doing, I don't know. She, she wasn't <laughs> digging in the garden, I don't think. But.
2: No, I don't no. really know.
1: But she started the process, and then the Italians picked up the slack. Yeah.
2: Well, let's uh, get man, back awesome. to this book now. And, uh, it's a challenge to me because all of your uh, chapters are um, in Norwegian, uh, which I, I don't naturally pronounce well, um, but then you have the translation. Um, explain to us why you broke down the chapters in this way.
5: Um, well, I wanted it the, – the chapters themselves um, each represent – Uh, They're kind of an element or an icon that is or has played a very important role to the food culture today. So, you know, the first chapter we start with um, foraging.
2: Yeah, which which I didn't realize that it's general. I mean, I knew about it in Copenhagen, this foraging thing, but there's so much to be found in in Norway. I think of it as, I think of the fords, I think of fjords, I think of it um, with... um, certain wild berries and things like that, but all the stuff you claim that's just sitting there and you say that, I don't know what you call it now, that you have a sort of right of way. Anybody can can uh, pick things. There are rules, though, right?
5: Yeah, that's right. The all man's written, which is every man's right. Yes. And that you can go, It it, it just shows that, you know, nature belongs to everyone mm-hmm. and we all have a, the ability to gather from it, but we have to be respectful. So, you know, they always say, take what you need, but don't take more, and make sure you yeah, always leave I like for the next, which is a beautiful thing. It is
2: beautiful. And
5: and I think what, what really fascinated me before we moved to Norway, um, I kind of was challenged to, to try and find more about the culture, because the food culture, I think internationally, we don't quite understand it for what it really is, and with the way it's been presented um, at least for me, I didn't I didn't know a lot about Norwegian food culture, other than the little bits that you kind of know here and there, like lefse or, oh, or those
6: right. things. And
5: and so a friend of mine who is actually from uh, the north of Norway, and we were talking in Rome about you know Norwegian food, and she had mentioned, oh, when I was a girl, we used to always go and pick chanterelles. Oh, and I is. think it, that really hit me right then, and I thought wait a minute, you have chanterelles in Norway? <laughs> and she's like, yeah, they're everywhere. And I thought, well, I've never connected that to, I would never have imagined, you know, that you would just pick chanterelles and then eat them in your <laughs> in Norway. And So when I heard that, I thought, you know what, there's so much more that is out there that we have to find. And there is. And there's so many things that are growing here that we have. You know, we actually have uh, wild oregano. And we have seaweed up in the north that tastes like truffle. Wow. So there are amazing flavors and nuances here that, um, you know, you can just go out into the nature and find. But, of course, this information needs to continue to be passed down and has to be learned in order to continue, you know, for everyone. So it's something that I think, you know, for myself, I have to completely start over and learn about. But there's so much knowledge here that I'm lucky enough to be able to you know, ask people or ask neighbors, and they can give their wisdom as well.
1: Yeah, how how far north do you actually live? We are,
5: we're not too north. We're actually, if you look at the map from Oslo, yes. if you look at Oslo and Bergen, and they're kind of they're directly apart from each other on along the coasts on each coastline. So we're actually in between, but we're closer to Oslo, about yeah. two and a half hours. So I think we're Bergen, kind of in the valley.
2: Bergen is where this restaurant is. Okay. Should
5: be. Oh, yeah. yeah, that might be then. Yeah. And, you know, Bergen's a, is a lovely place. That's actually where my husband is from. So I know Bergen quite well. Mm-hmm. Um, but the valley, the, the area we are in, is actually known as the Medieval Valley. And it's called the Numidol, um, which means valley. And it is the one place in Norway that has the most um, standing medieval structures of the entire country. Mm hmm. So a lot you you'll travel travel through here. We have four of the stave churches, and we have so many of these beautiful buildings. The, the farm we are on is from the 17th century.
2: Yeah, that's so we have be old. Beautiful.
5: Yeah, I mean, so it's just it's a, such an inspiring place. It's the forest. It's the uh, the water. We are close to Hadongavida, which is Europe's uh, largest plateau. Uh-huh. So there's the reindeer, and we have the moose. So it's a very uh, It's a very charming place to be, and it's a great place to be for the food culture and to learn more about the traditional dishes, because they're still being made here in this area.
1: Now, now hunting's also big, right?
5: It is, and it it is hunting season right now, actually, so uh, (laughs) a lot of people are going away for the weekend. Uh, No. And, uh, and, oh, go
4: ahead.
5: No, go ahead.
2: They're they're away for the weekend.
5: They're away from the weekend, and um, that's actually one of the chapters that I wanted to include in here because it is such a big part, is the hunt. And it's uh, important to know because I I do think there's um, certain connotations when we talk about, you know, hunting. Um, But Norwegians are very, very good at their responsibility to to the hunt and to make sure that everything's done in a sustainable way and yeah. Done for the best interest of the animal, and so it's just you know. And, and here we have the, as I said, the moose, and we have reindeer, and oh, I'm trying to think of uh, hunting birds. You have grouse, so it's something that's still very much part of the culture. People are still young; people are obviously part of it, and it's a lovely way to kind of know where your food is coming from. Right and And the just to run
2: through these other sections that you're covering besides the foraging and hunting, you have the waters yeah. and you have plenty of that um the um, the summer mountain farm, which is where you are are you no. uh well we we're
5: we have we're on a, like a a a farm itself, but the summer farm is actually where all the if you had a farm in the old days you would have a specific a uh, summer farm that you would move the animals to where they could just <coughs> go out and graze. So they still have them around all over Norway. It's like that
2: uh, in Italy. What's it
1: called? Yeah, it's called the tra- Transumanza. Transumanza.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And,
1: and, and they, have it in, they have it in France too. Yes, they do Send in Spain. parts of France and in Spain. Right. Where, where where you have a situation where the, the lowland gets very hot and no grass will grow, where they take the sheep whatever they are, and... Yeah take take them up, take them up where there is something to eat.
2: they even have their own language and lifestyle it's interesting, so you have it too there um then you have the the harvest um the um we did the hunt um what else oh the storage thing what do you call that a stabburet
5: it's just, uh it's a it's a stabor. Uh, a Stabour. the is da, because anything with et or en at the end is, is da. So oh. this is uh, a stalbuur, and and this is a medieval structure. Um, we have one on our farm,
4: and Damn. of course, it
5: was used to store food <laughs> in the old days. So
2: yeah, I like that it's raised up above the ground. To keep the rats and stuff away. <laughs> right? Yeah, I, I, I,
4: really
2: I, that really worried me. Actually, I was thinking <laughs> about all this food in this place and, and what would happen with all these hungry rodents
5: running around. <laughs>
2: oh,
5: right? They would all go up. So it's a very smart, uh, smart way of designing the building.
2: And, and then there are all these other traditions, like um, the the uh, campfires and. The um, the, the what is this last one? How do you pronounce this? The iron, the, the, the brittle and the and the, the oven. Amber. Can you yeah. pronounce those for me? Because I think it sounds the, so good.
5: <laughs> yes, yeah, so it's it's the jernet, the token og ovnen.
2: Wow. Okay.
1: So they're
5: um, and you know those are you know a lot of when you think of Norwegian food, I think a lot of uh, mixed, uh, people will immediately think like lefse. Or the baked goods, right. waffles,
4: mm-hmm.
5: lafsa and, uh, and lafsa is, is baked on the griddle, which is the toka. and uh, and it was so important that uh, you know it's it's played such an important role, the cooking of these flatbreads or lufsa, um and these other baked goods. So it was one of those things where I thought we have to include it in here,
4: mm-hmm.
5: and and uh, and as we went through the chapters. Um, for me, it was I was thinking about oh, should I, should we put them seasonally, or should we, you know, normally do an appetizer, desserts, and this not. And, and I just felt that in order to properly tell the story of the food culture here, that you had to put it in a way that you could, you know, round them up under these really important elements. And I I think it, it describes it well enough. And if you kind of look at it, it does go a little bit with the seasonality where you start in the spring and you're foraging and then, you know, in the summertime you're out in the waters. Mm. even though a lot of the seafood is prime in the winter, but the are in the summer, And then you have the harvest at the end in the autumn and then you start the hunt and then you're storing the food for the winter. You're using the fire in the winter as well and then, of course, baking. So for me it was just a way to really kind of tell the story and to bring the reader. So it's not just not just full of recipes and a cookbook, but it really is to kind of guide you through the feeling and the journey of what it is to eat here in Norway.
1: Now, we eat a little bit of Norway every week. Just Do you? My, just that my wife doesn't know that. <laughs> what are you eating? <laughs> a farm-raised Atlantic salmon from Norway, contracted oh, yes. contracted for by Whole Food Markets. Oh, yeah. That's wh- That's Apparently, that's where they get their salmon from.
5: Oh. Yes.
1: Very good. Do you do you do anything do you make anything special out of it? <laughs> I just I just okay. broil it, cook it. it. <laughs> no, just cook it. Nothing nothing yeah. nothing special. It's one it's one of those things that even a even a brainless nincompoop like me in the kitchen can <laughs> c- can produce a, a beautiful dish oh. in a, a very oh, no. in a very short time.
5: Oh, I imagine you probably uh, can cook very,
1: very well. <laughs> I have I have one little secret which I which I learned in Melbourne, Australia, of all places, and that is that you you should leave the skin on the salmon to crisp. Yes. And uh, but I, but I, I I have my own way of doing it because I start with the skin side up, and then I, after four minutes I peel the skin off and I put it on one side. Then I finish cooking the. Fish and then when the oven Is when the broiler is Turned off but the oven is still hot I put the skin back in the Back in the oven to crisp <laughs> oh. and, it, and it's fabulous It well,
2: sounds
4: really good something,
2: something In the book I think is really important um, Although I think probably A lot's lost in translation Of these ingredients um, you, you have The Actual ingredient, and then you have a, a substitute or equivalent um, and yes. yeah, and, um, and it, well, I mean I interviewed a um, a norwegian uh, a cook i mean she was um, not a full chef, but she was a cook, and uh, she talked constantly about cloudberries, and I have no idea, and here you compare them to golden raspberries, which we have growing in our garden.
5: Oh, perfect! Yeah, I mean the, the flavor profile is a little different, but I would imagine it's probably the closest that you could get because um, uh, they are in the same family. Uh, what but about yeah,
2: the lingonberries? I I, they didn't taste to me like cranberries at all.
5: The lingonberries, well, they're yeah. they're a bit smaller, but they're the closest substitute would be throwing in the cranberries.
4: Um,
5: so it has that kind of bitterness, but like for Thanksgiving, because. Obviously, we celebrate here, uh, so I use the lingonberries to make like my my cranberry jams and oh, yeah. and those things cranberry jelly, and it works really, really well. And I actually find the taste to be, you know, the same. I couldn't really tell much of a difference. So, um, so when I give these substitutes, because you know, I think it's really important that you never be feel limited, and that you don't feel like oh, I can't I can't make that because oh, it, it's not something I can find here. I feel that you should always be inspired and to use what is available for you. So if you're growing your golden raspberries in it, you should, you know, use those. It might not be the exact same um, end product. Maybe the flavors will be a little bit different. Uh, Cloudberry is probably a bit more earthy. But, you know, it's still going to be really great, and it's still something that can hopefully inspire you to then cook and try with, you know those
2: ingredients that are around here. Yeah, be nice to have the real thing because I don't think chicken or turkey is a substitute for hair. <laughs> yeah,
5: <laughs> it's true. Right? If you can, if you can get hair, I, I suggest you go for
1: it. But, but if you can't. But, but at least you can catch one.
5: Yeah right. <laughs> yeah right.
2: <laughs> but the one thing that actually um, startled me was uh, many Natal Pavlovas. <laughs> We used to oh, live, yes. We used to live in Australia, and that's not my idea of a Pavlova at all.
5: Right, right. <laughs> not not Pavlova. Yeah,
1: they, you, you can't trust those Norwegians. They're a sly lot. They are,
5: right? We, t- they, t- no. Turn your back well,
1: on you know, them. This is... Turn your back on them, they'll invade your country. <laughs> right? They'll send a long ship over and rape all your women and
2: <laughs> plunder.
1: <laughs>
2: you know what? I'd, I'd like to be able to use spruce tips, but I've never been able to find them in a, like in the produce markets or anything. Farmers' markets.
5: Do you have? I mean, I don't know the area so, but do you have them growing? Do you have the spruces growing around? Well, yes. They, 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 the yeah the,
1: the trees are the trees around Pennsylvania are deciduous mostly mostly. Like like see, maples yes. and hickories and yeah. chestnuts. And oh
5: yes, of course. I mean, if you yeah, if you're ever in an area where you do find the spruce, spruce trees, um, of course the the season for the the tips are very really short. short.
2: Yeah,
5: like you know, there's like two three weeks, and you kind of have to wait for it. But um, they're so wonderful, and they you know they used to eat them here, just chew on them because it would help prevent scurvy. So that's what they would eat. Oh,
2: they're vitamin C, yeah. Huh?
5: Yeah, exactly. So they they really are quite healthy, um, but they have this really, you know, kind of citrusy taste, and it can be quite strong. But so for me, I thought, oh, I bet it would be, taste really lovely if we just, you know, beer batted them and then fried them up, and and it, it, it was really delicious. So it was kind of one of those fun, let's try it out and see if, if it would work, and uh, it came out really, really well. It's one of my favorite recipes, actually.
2: Yeah, well, who and you I know? had my
5: family... Yep. Yeah, go ahead. Oh. Uh, Pham had my family, and they were visiting in May, and it happened to be uh, the spruce tip season, so I made it for them, and they were like, wow, we had no idea. No idea you could use these. (laughs) Yeah, I mean,
2: I I only know it by chefs, but um, the other thing that surprised me was that you have so much lamb.
5: We have, well, you know, it's a country that loves their lamb, and... uh, we actually are in lamb season right now. We have of course the spring, but then right now September is kind of the lamb month because uh, forcle, which is the lamb and cabbage dish, yes is Norway's national dish and next week, I think it's the last Thursday of September every year that is uh, the foracle day so. Tradition that you eat it on the last Thursday of September, oh. but, and that's and that's actually because all the from when the animals were up in the summertime, all the the sheep were up there, the lambs, and then they bring them down now, right from the mountain. So now they're ready to, you know, to go to the slaughter. So it's a very yes. So there is a lot of lamb here. Of course, there's uh, cow and and pig as well, but um,
2: uh, lamb's my lamb, favorite. Yeah. <laughs>
5: Is that, it? Is it?
2: Yeah, but this looks good, too. You, you have shaved, cured pork with pickled fennel and strawberries. Do you make all this stuff yourself?
5: I do, yeah. I mean, some of the recipes, they're very traditional, and um, some, of course, have. There's a couple in here who have been provided to me from friends, taught me how to do it. Um, but I do enjoy just kind of using the ingredients that are around and trying to... You know, come up with some new ways of putting them together. So that salad was kind of the um, summertime, you know, let's see the fennel and the, you know, Norwegian strawberries are, they're known for their strawberries here. They're so delicious. So it's really fun to be able to use strawberries in yes. maybe a little bit slightly different ways than normal.
2: The, uh, the, the um, startling photo of the book is you, you've nailed all these. Fish up on boards
5: over fire. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> like, yeah, it's uh, it's. Uh, I I learned that dish. Um, we have a lovely couple here, Miley and Shell, and they run this medieval forest. So they're all about you know continuing with the traditions and 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 teaching people about it. the same methods they would use to build you know the log houses or or whatever it might be a craft. And so, you know, I went over and he said, oh, well, let me show you, let's do a, a proper medieval Viking kind of dish. And uh, and so he was like, this is, you take the trout and you, you know, you skin it and out, you bone it, it, and then you, yeah, you just very, very rustic-like, just nail in some wood, sticks, <laughs> it. put it on the plank, and then pop it up. And it is so delicious. And, you, you know, you talked about leaving the skin on mm-hmm. earlier yeah, and letting yeah. it crisp. And this is just divine, you know, the the skin just from right underneath next to the flames and it just crisps and the tail curls and it's, it. Just, it, it's just fascinating and it's really fun and it's actually kind of a really cool dish that if you ever want to, you know, it's quite, it's actually quite simple, but, you know, it's a fun thing if you have friends or family around and everyone can kind of gather and you just kind of wait, you know, not too long and then have this lovely meal outside so
2: well, this is fascinating book I'll tell you
5: <laughs> so much to <production> learn <laughs> yeah, <alone. laughs> yeah and, I, and that's kind of what I was hoping I was hoping that it would be more more than just the recipes but you know kind of kind of show people outside of Norway what what the food culture is really like and how amazing the ingredients are and like for me I've lived you know I lived in Italy and lived in Mozambique and England and I've traveled around, with, you know, with my family. And for me, I feel that the ingredients that are in Norway are some of the best in the world. And I, I really would like more people to start to see that and to understand and and come here and, and want to be inspired and to think, oh, this is really great. And how can I also take some of this amazing, you know, connection to the nature and how they eat and and apply that to wherever. You
4: know, one lives so. Well, well, well leave, you, leave, that leave,
5: is
6: they,
2: my hope. You've certainly conveyed that.
1: Yeah, leaves leaves the latch key under the doormat, and we'll be right we'll over. Be, we're coming. Yeah.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, I tell you what, we don't really lock our doors, so you're. One, <laughs> See, <laughs> you're look welcome. at that. See, it must be great. Are you staying there forever?
5: Yeah, we we really love it, and I feel like this is this is home for now, and uh, hopefully for forever, over a really long time at least, and uh, we're settled in. We have amazing community, and I mean, it's
6: gorgeous here.
5: I feel inspired every day, and you know, coming from Utah, where we have the mountains, of course, and the desert, and my family is, all my family is really from Colorado. Oh. So I, for me, the mountains is home, and so I feel very, very comfortable here. I feel like this is, you know, a good place to be.
1: Well, thank you so much for being a part of On the Menu Radio yeah. for today.
5: I am. Thank you guys so much. Okay.
1: Podcasting services for On the Menu Radio are provided by ASP Station, www.aspstation.net. Go okay. ahead.
2: And
0: now we have another secret unveiled in China, Chinese cooking. And we're going to be exploring, oh what a fantastic mystical name this is, cooking south of the clouds. Now that's pie, isn't it?
1: It is, it is.
0: <laughs> so, but um, Georgia Friedman has revealed all these secrets, the culinary secrets from a little known area, but it is like a cultural crossroads. And You'll find some things familiar, some things brand new. Uh, listen to Georgia tell us all about the Yunnan province and its cuisines.
2: Georgia Friedman, I told you before we came on air that your book is so packed densely with information, and it's from a part of China that is so little known. Georgia Friedman is the author. Her husband, Josh Wand, did the wonderful photography, and every every page I turned, I found some new and interesting information. The book is called Cooking South of the Clouds, Recipes and Stories from China's Yunnan province.
1: Where to start? Let's start with this. The population of China is now 1.5 gazillion. <laughs> Every everything about China is big, except Yunnan, which is small.
6: <laughs> Yunnan is small compared to the rest of China, but certainly, if you are in Yunnan traveling around, it is quite big. In the same way that um, you know countries in Europe, it's, it is the size of some countries
1: in Europe. So, on
6: that scale. It is quite big, but compared to the rest of the country and some of the other provinces, it's fairly small.
1: How did it become Yunnan?
6: Um, you know, I'm not sure how the name... The name actually means South of the clouds. Yeah, um, okay. I'm not sure... So that's where that name what, comes from. Yeah, I'm not sure at what point it, they began calling it Yunnan. I know the area was called Yunnan fairly far back, although not necessarily with these particular borders, but it's just south of the Tibetan Plateau, and as you head north to the tip of Yunnan you really start to climb into the clouds and so it really becomes this very obvious thing that this is the area of land that is south of this extremely mountainous cloudy area of the world um, and as you get farther south in Yunnan it becomes quite warm and temperate and you get subtropical rainforests and some other things going on all the way south.
1: Now, is this is, is part of Yunnan where the, pan, where the giant pandas come from? Uh, no, the pandas are in Sichuan, which is oh, different, different uh, actually,
6: okay. yes, but, but it does border Yunnan. It's yeah, all you know, everything borders Yunnan. It. I mean, I, it, A lot it, of things border Yunnan, yeah.
2: Exactly. I mean, I'm looking at this map you did, and you've got um, uh, Myanmar, you've got um, uh, Sichuan, you've got um, Vietnam, Laos. Uh, uh, you know, it's just, now you say that there is no one cuisine from this area because there are so many minorities And each Mm -hmm. one maintains its culture. Tell us a little bit about how that happened to come to pass.
6: Well, this part of the world um, is really a crossroads um, for a lot of places. And because it's the border of so many different areas and it's so mountainous and used to be so difficult to get into, there were a lot of migrations that came through Yunnan, and some people stayed, and some people continued. If you look at the history of different people in Asia, and see that a lot of minority groups were pushed out of the more um, what are now the more populated areas of China that had the best arable land, and pushed up into the mountains. Um, and you know, Yunnan was not actually part of the rest of China for a really long time because it was this sort of ungovernable area that had its own kingdoms that were up in the mountains and were able to defend themselves from invading armies. But uh, that way, over the course of time, a lot of different groups of people sort of made a home in the mountains away from the conflict that had pushed them out of different parts of um, China and some other parts of Asia. Um, And then some people continued down. The the Dai minority people in Yunnan um, are the same group of people historically, very long time ago, as the the Thai, the T-A-I Thai, that um, eventually populated Thailand Thailand and Laos. Right. So if you really look back at the evidence of various bits of historical migration, so many different groups came through Yunnan in some states.
1: Now, that we, you talk about, and I can't remember the name of this, something about the Horse Road. And it, and it the T-Horse Road, Yeah, tea, The Tea horse Road, that sounded really entertaining.
6: Yeah, it's a beautiful name. Um, it's a trade corridor that is also called the Western Silk Road, and it did tremendous amounts of trade for thousands and thousands of years, much longer than the Silk Road that we think of up in the north um, that goes from Xi'an and up into the Middle East. But this corridor, it's called the Tea horse Road because there is tea down in southern Yunnan and in um, other parts of southern China. And then there were horses that were um, being bred by the Tibetans. And you needed horses for the Chinese army, and the Tibetans wanted tea. And so those were some of the major things that were traded along the route. But, of course, there was also lots of other things, jade and spices and rice and herbs and foraged ingredients and all kinds of things. And the trade route didn't just go north to south up to Tibet um, and down into southern Yunnan and Laos but also in many different directions there are a lot of different historical border towns on the way into Myanmar um, and it even continued down then into India so it was a really rich area of trade and that has also really informed the food.
4: How
2: did you organize your book?
6: So the book is organized geographically because with the different geographic areas in Yunnan you wouldn't necessarily eat the foods of the cold northern areas that are populated by Tibetans and other minorities near Tibet, with the foods that are eaten down in the south near Laos, where you have bright, grilled, spicy things that are similar to what you would find in Vietnam and Laos. So it didn't make sense to do the book in that traditional, you know, meat, vegetables kind of way. And I really wanted people to understand this part of the world as well, not just the food, but really sort of Give an introduction to this unique place because I think it's important to understand where the foods come from whenever we're talking about foods that we haven't really come across and, well, and historical foods as well. It's important to know whose food you're eating. And so, breaking it up by focusing on Central Yunnan and Northern, Southern, Eastern, Western um, was a way of keeping meals together that would make sense and foods that are fairly similar, or at least to be eaten on the same table, and also talking about the histories of those different regions, because they are historically fairly different, and there were different groups that were in power in each.
2: Now, even though there's no single cuisine, there are some characteristics that I encountered over and over again in the book, one of them being an abundance of mushrooms.
6: Yes. Yes. uh, Yunnan is famous for its mushrooms. There are, well, thousands of different kinds of mushrooms, and some of the most famous kinds, like porcinis and matsutakes, are harvested and then shipped out to specialty markets all across the world. A lot of them go straight to Japan or to Seattle. So Yunnan is extremely famous for its um, well, for Puarti, which also comes from Yunnan, and then for its mushrooms. And there are lots of kinds of mushrooms there that don't get exported because people don't really know about them in the local. Oh, yeah, I'm not sure In about many that. ways.
2: Yeah, I mean, yeah. I'd, I'd be a little bit nervous about uh, foraging mushrooms there. I mean,
6: <laughs> yes, well, unfortunately, you go, you know, there are experts, <laughs> and yes. they're, they're good spots for foraging secrets. Yeah, of I course. know, everybody does. Um, <laughs> And then there are specialty restaurants that will prepare the mushrooms for you. So even if it's a type that, you know, there are many types of mushrooms that you can eat as long as they're cooked properly. Yeah, and the if, one you, you know, said,
2: if it wasn't cooked properly, was poisonous.
6: <laughs> yes. No, there are there are some that if not cooked properly will definitely be poisonous. And those are the kinds of things that, you know, you only go to someone who is really expert at cooking that.
2: Now, you also said, I mean, I've also picked up from your book that there's this, uh, a huge number of soups, and it's part of almost every meal. Huh?
6: Yes. Well, so noodle soups are particularly popular all over Yunnan, and that's, you're starting to see some Yunnan restaurants in the U.S., which is lovely, and most of those are focused on rice noodle soups because that is such a visible part of the cuisine. There is something that you have for breakfast or lunch, and there are just hundreds of different ways of making rice noodle soups in Yunnan. But then also, like with any Chinese region if you're making a meal for a family or friends and you have more than just, you know, one or two people sitting around the table, you generally also prepare a soup to go with the rest of the meal and that's just very traditional throughout China.
2: And then there're Endless pickles.
6: Yeah, people in Yunnan pickle a lot of things. If you go to the market, you can find an enormous number of different kinds of pickles. There are pickled chilies, which are common in some other parts of China, lots of different kinds of pickled greens. There is a recipe for just two of those, uh, one of those in this book, and then a quick pickle that people also do. But there are lots of pickled garlic, and there are pickled chive blossoms, and there are you know, various kinds of even pickled fruit that you can get as a snack it's a and depending on where you are in Yunnan of course the different kinds of pickles change um, but it's pretty prevalent throughout
4: and
2: the, the, um, the, the your headline this one soup uh, which has an interesting story the, the, the one where um, is that the one where e- you get
1: a noodle yeah, and you yeah, do a bridge, keep, keep on biting
2: and-
6: ah the crossing the bridge rice noodles
2: yeah crossing yeah. the bridge rice noodles
6: Yes, no, that is definitely Yunnan's most famous dish. I think in part because it has just a beautiful story that goes with it that talks about this, the mythic origins of this soup um, and this one particular city, but also because it is an absolutely delicious soup, and it also, there's a really unique way of serving it. And so that was one of the dishes that I had first heard about before I ever went to Yunnan back in 2000. Um and it's the dish that most people think of when they think about Yunnan food.
1: Now, do they, do they cook the, the broth for a very long time?
3: Yes,
2: yeah. Um,
3: like the ramen.
1: Broth? The, 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 we, what was that ramen broth yeah, we, we had in we, London? We went to a, uh, one of a chain of like four or five Chinese restaurants specialized in noodles in, in London. Mm-hmm. I can't remember the name of it now. And uh, they they said the thing that makes our noodle soup so good is it's cooked for twenty four to forty eight hours.
6: Yeah, no, that that absolutely makes sense. Yeah, um, and also in different parts of um, Chinese cuisine, you'll find noodles or sauces or broths rather, and or sauces um, that are sort of continually cooked, where you're adding more meat and you're adding more water and you're adding more aromatics, but. Um, the base of the soup is just constantly being used. You know, you're not throwing it out at the end of the day. You're reboiling it the next day and then adding more. So, they really, you really develop a really rich flavor. And I think a lot of the restaurants that do a really particularly good job of this soup have that quality to them, where they've been cooked and cooked and cooked and cooked.
2: And. and- this is um, <laughs> a little Julia Child, somebody here en- will explain how Julia Child ended up eating, crossing the bridge, rice noodle soup. <laughs> oh,
6: yes. No, well, um, during World War II, Julia and Paul were stationed in Yunnan, and it was where they courted. Um, they had met previously at a different location, and then they um, were in different, two different places, and they both ended up in Yunnan because um, Kunming was one of the last holdouts against the Japanese, um, and so a bunch of American servicemen, um, well, it, it's a really interesting story, but a bunch of American pilots resigned their commissions and joined up with a special force that was a volunteer force based out of Kunming. Um, this was shortly before um, Pearl Harbor, and so eventually they were joined by a lot of other um, U.S. military presence in Kunming and in other parts of Yunnan Kunming is the capital of the province and so they were both there and um, I don't know that she particularly liked the spicy stuff there (laughs) there are some (laughs) quotes that you know there were. It was not her favorite Yunnan, her favorite Chinese cuisine. I think she preferred the northern foods a little bit um, because they're a bit milder. But she de- there is definitely records. Um, she is quoted as talking about these, some of these different soups that we have in the book. Right.
2: And, of course, the hams are very famous. You, you say that they're as good as Italian hams.
6: Oh, some of the hams in Yunnan, when you can get the really high-quality ones, are unbelievably good. Um, there's been some speculation that maybe these hams are sort of China's answer to prosciutto di Parma. Um,
2: I'm looking at a photograph, and it looks like it's a prosciutto product.
6: Yes, no, it is absolutely amazing. I and I, you know, I, I'm a foodie. I write about food for a living, and I've tried different hams all around the world. And this is going to the source and being handed a piece of ham by one of these really top ham makers was one of the it was certainly the best ham I've ever tasted, uh, and they use it abundantly in the cooking. They the, the will recipes. just, you know, take cups of it and stir fry it. I'm waiting for the time when when they'll be allowed to import. To the U.S., but of course all that is much trickier than importing anything else. Oh, yes, is even particularly yeah. tricky.
2: A lot of these recipes really surprised me because I never conceived of anything even vaguely like them. Um, the most amazing to me was fried kidney beans with fennel.
6: <laughs> oh, yeah, and that's
2: an easy one
6: to do, actually. Yeah. You don't need any weird ingredients or anything you can't get your hands on at the local grocery store. Yeah, um, It's very common in a lot of restaurants. You cook the kidney beans and then you uh, put them in a little bit of cornstarch to give them a little bit of a crisp and fry them up. And they're lovely, meltingly soft in the inside and lovely and crisp on the outside. Um, and in this particular version, which we really like, you um, put some fennel in stir-fry right at the end with a little bit of fennel. In China, of course, it's um, a fennel that is all fronds and has no bulbs. Yeah, I grow that order. in my fennel. garden.
2: I have plenty of it. I'll, oh, months, excellent. You can have it. Um A good thing to know what you can use it for. Uh, there's there's not a lot, uh, unsurprisingly, not a lot of seafood in, in the uh, –
1: Mm-hmm. No, there Wind. are um, it's, a, it's, a long, it's a long way. To I stand. know,
2: but she does have a crayfish with chilies and citron peppercorns, right?
6: Yes. So there are. I mean, some of the biggest rivers in all of Asia come out of Yunnan and you end up with a lot of tiny fish actually there are lots and lots of dishes where you get really tiny fish and fry them um, but it's not really the kind of thing that we can source here so it wasn't useful for the cookbook Um, but yeah I mean the Mekong originally you know comes through Yunnan before it goes anywhere the Yangtze comes through Yunnan um, the Red River the Pearl River the Salween Um, so there is plenty of fish in Yunnan but in those, mostly in those areas, and it's freshwater fish, um, so there were very few fish dishes that I felt like were a good fit for, for a cookbook for an American audience, particularly for a very first Yunnan cookbook.
2: Well, you know, that really brings me to the question, I mean, did, did you expect, or are you expecting that um, home cooks in in the U.S. are going to pick up and cook from this book?
6: I really hope so. I mean, the way we've built it, it is full of beautiful pictures, and some people will pick it up and hopefully learn about the province and look at the pictures, which I was very blessed to have my husband with me doing this throughout the seven years that we were um, preparing this book, and his photos are just gorgeous. It took um, seven years. One, seven years. Well, we moved to Yunnan for a couple of years, and then we had to come back to the U.S. for um, – work reasons, and we just kept going back two to four times a year. So, yes, it's a long, long project. Um, but, yeah, no, the, one of the reasons that I felt particularly strong about doing a book about Yunnan is that a lot of the food is quite simple. Um, some of it requires that you may order some Chinese ingredients or have a Chinese market somewhere near you, but that's becoming more and more popular. Anyway, I think a lot of Americans are starting to pick up even just things like Chinese soy sauce. And a lot of cooks are really interested in Asian food. So that's a little bit less of a barrier. But then some dishes are just, you know, grilled fish stuffed with beautiful fresh herbs and fresh chilies or noodle soup. And some of the dishes are really very makeable. This is not a part of the country that historically had a lot of wealth and I was only going into people's homes and seeing the way that they cook for their families. Um, there are very few dishes in here that are specialty dishes that you would go out for. A lot of them are things that people make in their homes. Right. So it's, you know, technique-wise, a lot of it is very, very easy.
2: Yeah, I think it's it just, again, is the unexpected. I mean, these are not familiar uh, dishes mm-hmm. for the most part. And and the, uh, the area must be very curious. I mean, the It seems to me with all these different customs that you were talking about, like walking marriages. I mean, it seems so foreign and exotic.
6: Yeah, no, it's a very different part of the world. And even, you know, the Chinese will come to Yunnan um, as tourists specifically because it it is very different from the rest of the country. It's the kind of thing you find also in the mountains of um, Thailand, for instance. You know, there are different, the hill tribes there are are in many cases the same minorities that you'll find in Yunnan. There's a lot of overlap. But it really is in that way a unique part of the world. But that doesn't mean that the food is not cookable. You know, in many right. cases you don't even need a walk to make these recipes.
2: Right. And what is a, a walking marriage?
6: Oh, well, the Mosa, um are a minority group um, up in northern Yunnan. Um, and they are a um, matrilineal society. Um, the mother keeps The home, and um, in many cases, this is not true of everybody, certainly, but in many cases, the children continue to live in their mother's house. And a walking marriage is simply a term that um, I think the Chinese probably came up with for a structure of relationship that didn't look like a traditional Chinese marriage. It's a more fluid relationship, much more similar to the way we live now, the way a lot of people live now. Some people get married and some people don't. And it's not taboo in the culture to have a long term relationship with someone who is not living in your home with you, who is still living in their own family's household, and those relationships can last decades and involve children, or they can be short-lived in the same way that dating would be here.
2: Well, I, I'll say Georgia Friedman, this book is a revelation, again, it's ah. cooking south of the clouds, and um, I'm, I'm fascinated, I thought right away, we'd get on a plane and go to, uh, you know, but... I don't know if Peter's ready for that just yet. And you said that it's uh, very different from the first time that you went there. So it's really getting on the, the uh, tourist map?
6: Oh, yes. When I first went, it was mostly backpackers. There were some very nice hotels, or maybe two very nice hotels in Kunming, um, specifically for when government officials came to visit or if there was some sort of important event going on. that so They weren't used for very much by tourists but um, in the last few years there are dozens of really high-end properties going in some international hotel chains have places in different parts of Yunnan I think we stayed at a Marriott resort at one point when I had my in-laws traveling with me (laughs) and you know sometimes I'm traveling with just my husband and now our young daughter Um, and so you know we'll stay in small places that are more local and then other times I've brought other family and friends and we've Stayed in much nicer places um, and it, it can be very, very accessible to put, to anyone really because, you know, even if you don't speak Chinese, you could always hire a driver and, and a translator the way you would anywhere in the world and it's very easy to get around now.
2: Well, thank you, Georgia Friedman. It's, it's wonderful that, to be exposed to someplace new.
6: Well, thank you so much for having me. It's really lovely to talk to you guys about the book. I really appreciate the interest. Much success to you. Thank you so much.
1: Well, we sure hope you enjoyed today's program, wandering around the world, getting, getting higher and higher, <laughs> lower, lower and lower, sometimes maybe. I don't know. They, these, these ladies are certainly great adventurers. Yes. And that there is no question. And uh, we're glad to be able to share their stories with you. And we'll have more exciting stories same time, same place next week. And until then,
0: bye-bye.